All right, ladies and gentlemen, Torah studies begins. No problem, Karen. All right, Torah studies begins. It is great to see you, to see everybody. Torah portion this week is Bishalach. And tonight, the theme, at least the title that I'd like to give to this class is Don't Move. Don't Move because we're talking about a very interesting mitzvah, the mitzvah known as Tuchum Shabbos. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, if you're not familiar with the mitzvah, that's okay. It's not a, it's not a very, it's not one of the most common mitzvot that are discussed and studied, but it is a mitzvah, and it is a very important mitzvah, and it holds, as we'll see tonight, a very important lesson for each of our lives. Okay, so let's begin by giving a little bit of, one second, by giving a little bit of context as to the Torah portion and this mitzvah. Okay, so we are in the book of Exodus. As you know, the book of Exodus talks about, wait for it, the Exodus, right? You didn't think that was going to happen, but yes. The book of Exodus talks about the Exodus. Don and Fred, great to see you guys. Karen, welcome back. Ariella, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, So in the book of Exodus, we read about slavery. We read about plagues. We read about Moses. We read about freedom. And in this week's Torah portion, the Jews are free, but they find themselves against the sea. They might be free, but they're against the sea. And the problem is we have an advancing Egyptian army that is looking to schlep them back in, stuck between an Egyptian and a sea place. That is how the Jews are positioned in this week's Torah portion. And then the splitting of the sea. The Jews go into the sea, the sea is, turns, it turns into dry land in that area. The Jews go in. The Egyptians follow. The water collapses. The Egyptians are gone. And that ends, in essence, the Egyptian experience. So now you have a people of a few million that are wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and Israel, waiting for direction. So, of course, the most important Jewish question to ask at this juncture Right? What's the most important Jewish question to ask? All right? You're in the wilderness. You've gotten out of Egypt. You've experienced the splitting of the sea. What's the most important Jewish question you can ask? I see some of you itching for the unmute button. Go for it. Huh? What do we yeah, what are we eating? What's, what's on the menu? What, what's, what's, what's going on? Right? Yeah, we got, we're out of Egypt. That's fantastic. It's great. No, what are we eating? It's always about the food. It's always about the food. So here's the deal. Trivia question. You ready? How many days of food, of provisions, did the Jews pack on the way out of Egypt? Trivia question. If you know, unmute. If you don't know, take a guess. Why not? Take a guess. How many days worth of food do you think they took out of Egypt? Think about it. How long does your box of Manischewitz last? I'm kidding. Um, more than one day. More. None. Sorry. I'd say none. More than none. No food. More. More than. More than none. Eighteen. Eighteen is a. Eighteen is a good number. We're getting closer. Here's the answer. Thirty days. Thirty days of food they had. They had one month's provision. But here's the question. You're ready for the question. The question is, what do you do after 30 days 
and the money runs, not the money, and the, and the food runs out, right? I'm giving away too much, um, right? What do you do when the food runs out after 30 days? You have no more matzah, no more Egyptian, uh, what is, what's Egypt famous for? What cuisine? I don't know. Whatever. The food is gone. What do you do? Now we're going to turn to Riva and ask the question. Riva, what do you do? When, right? So what do you do? So the Jewish people, right. So the, exactly. The Jewish people turned to God and they said, water, oh, excellent. Alice has a great question. What about water for several million people? Excellent. They're, they, they encountered water. The Torah talks about in this week's Torah portion. And there was a well that travel, a traveling well, I know it sounds impossible, it's considered to be a miracle, that went with the Jewish people that gave them water to drink. And it was in the merit, actually, of Miriam, who was the sister of Moses and Aaron. Here's the question. What did they eat? Now, you and I probably know the answer. The answer, of course, is mana, 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 mana. Mana. They ate mana. Or man, in Hebrew it's called man. Um, in English it's called mana, just because English takes words like Yosef and makes it Joseph. Who knows why? Right? Joseph. That's what. What? <laughs> Joseph? All right. So it's the mana. It's the mana from heaven that comes down. Now, how does the mana work? Right? How did it operate? I'm glad you asked. So it would fall from heaven. In, encrusted, maybe, I don't know if that's the right word, but sandwiched between two layers of dew, D-E-W, right? So the, the dew would fall, and then the mana would fall, and then the dew would fall, and in the morning, the Jews would go out and gather the mana. That's what the Torah describes. It's all in this week's Torah portion. We're not going to do this inside. I'm leading up. This is all by way of introduction to get to our big idea. So the mana fell on Sunday and on Monday in the morning, Sunday morning and Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday morning and Friday morning they went out. Oh, one thing, one thing. Every day, no matter how much mana they collected, when they got back home, it was the same amount. Right? So now, no matter how much you collected, and I, I just go collected with my arms, although I don't know if it was like a swimming motion or a gathering motion. However, they collected the mana, no, right? Yes. What? Just like that? That's like a... All right, maybe. Reba's got her own technique. Everyone's got their own way of doing it. So um, however much they collected, it didn't matter. When you got home, you had exactly the same amount, an omer. An omer la gogolet, one omer per, per person. How much is an omer? Who knows? It was a certain measure, and that's all everybody got. Except for Friday. They went out Friday morning, they collected the mana, and lo and behold, they had double the amount, again, no matter how much you collected, double the amount of the previous days. And everyone was wondering, what's up with the double mana, Right? What's up with the double mana? Until Moses told them, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You ready? Tomorrow is, it was Friday, right? Tomorrow is Shabbos. And on Shabbos, we don't collect mana. Why? Because we got better things to do than collecting mana, right? We're not collecting mana. We're not cooking mana. We're not frying mana. We're not baking mana. We're not doing anything. We're not making mana on Shabbos. None of that. 
All we're doing is enjoying the day of rest. So what we're going to do, what we got today is a double portion. So you have food for Friday and you got your extra food that you can prepare already today for tomorrow. Make sense so far? Yes? And the commandment came out to the Jewish people saying, tomorrow, Shabbat morning, don't go out, don't look, don't collect, nothing's falling, not happening. So far, so good? Yes? Yes? Yes, yes, yes? Okay. There were two pranksters. I call them pranksters because I'm being nice. There were two individuals that were always causing trouble. They were troublemakers. Their names were Dasan and Aviram. Right? Dasan and Aviram. These were their names. These were guys, these were the two guys in Egypt that were fighting when Moses was coming around. Remember that one? The two guys that were fighting and one was hitting the other. And Moses said, what are you hitting the other? And the guy says, oh, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Aha. Right? Remember that guy? Yes. Well, the, these were Dustin and Aviram. So these guys, listen to what they, they were always stirring the pot, always causing trouble. They joined up, by the way, later on with Korach. Remember Korach, the guy who tried to overthrow uh, Moses and Aaron's leadership? They were the first in line in, in that, uh, in, in that uh, coup attempt or whatever you call it. So Dustin and Aviram, listen to this. They take their mana from the day before, from Friday, and early, early Shabbos morning, Shabbat morning, early in the morning before sunrise, they go out and they decide they're going to, uh, it's not really a prank, it's more, it's more um, devious than a prank, but they decide they're going to take their mana and put it out there into the fields and tell people, Moses said mana wasn't going to fall, but look, the mana fell. That was their plan. Are you with me? What was their intention? just to cause trouble and to somehow take away from the leadership of Moses. So they went, they took their mana from the day before, their raw mana, again, whatever that looked like, and they put it out there. Well, God is not going to be foiled by these two guys. So the birds came and the birds, oh, sorry, yeah, and the birds ate up the mana. Right? The, you knew the birds were going to eat up the mana? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Reva's on the story. You are on the story, my friend. So, the, um, the, birds, are, the birds ate up the mana. So, but Dustin and Avram didn't know because they put it out. They went back inside, went back to bed, allegedly. And then in the morning, they told, in the morning, they told, a second, they told, um, Everybody, go outside and you'll see mana. Well, everyone goes outside and guess what? There was no mana to be found. Why? Because, as you know now, the birds ate the mana. So this is a little bit about the story about the mana and about the, the history of the mana, how it came, when it came, and, and some details regarding that. Now, what's interesting is that we learn a, a very interesting law in conjunction with, um, with the aftermath of the story. And in order to show you what I refer to, I'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to do this together. Okay? So that's the story. Um, 
That's the story that happened. In the aftermath of the story, Hashem, God, was upset, and God reiterated the commandment not to go out on Shabbos, on Shabbat, to collect the mana, right? Don't do that. There's no mana. The whole thing was a fraud. Don't go outside. You're not meant to go outside and collect mana on Shabbos. Okay, I'm going to share my screen, and let's jump in. All right, give me a momento. It's bright. Yeah, it turned white. Okay, here we go. I'm going to make the screen a little bit bigger, and let's ask Donna. Donna, yes. Donna, please read. Hold on, let's get this going. Text number one. Here we go. This is God's response to the violation, or attempted violation. How long will you refuse to observe my commandments and my teachings? See, God has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Let each man remain in his place. No man should leave his place on the seventh day. All right, thank you. So, does that make sense? This, uh, this, this kind of admonition in the context, or admonishment, in the context of, 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 of the story that I, explained, that I described before. Yes, makes sense? Okay, so look at the last line. Look at the last line. So, no, I can't highlight it. Um, the commandment is, let each man or person remain in his place. No man should leave his place on the seventh day. Now, I call that redundant. Right? It could have just said... We're getting now nitty-gritty into the text, so work with me here. It says, let each man remain in his place. Well, there you go. Don't go out. But then it says, no man should leave his place on the seventh day. That seems to be repeating it twice. It's from this repetition that Maimonides explains that we derive a new law, not only related to the mana gathering, but a new law. And the new law is not just that we should remain in our place to not collect the mana on Shabbat, but no man should leave his place on the seventh day. This is a travel restriction. You see, travel restrictions existed even before uh, COVID. right? It's a travel restriction that we should not leave our place on Shabbat. Again, I want to be very clear here. The context is... Not to gather, one second, not to gather mana on Shabbos, on Shabbat. But the repetition is able to open up a new law. It's not just about collecting mana on Shabbat, but it's also about, it's also about not leaving our spaces on Shabbat. Take a look at Maimonides. Steve Howard, please read text 2A from Rambam. Can you, yes. No man should leave his place on the seventh day. The term place refers to the tehum, the range beyond the city's limits into which we may not venture on the Sabbath. Thank you. So Maimonides says, what does it mean? This last segment of that verse, no man should leave his place on the seventh day. It means the place refers to the tehum. What is the tehum? The tehum is the range beyond the city limits that we're not meant to go on Shabbat. So we're starting to find, we're starting to hear about this other law, this other prohibition about essentially traveling too far on Shabbat outside of the city. So what does that mean? Let's, let's continue. Text 2b, Maimonides continues to explain. All right, let's ask. Let's see who we can ask. Um, uh, David. 
David Lazan, please read text two B. Maimonides defines uh, for us, helps us define the the amount of of traveling that we're, one is allowed to go outside the city on Shabbat. The Torah did not explicitly state the extent of this range. The sages, however, transmitted a tradition that the range extends to 12 mm beyond the city, a measure that corresponds with the size of the Jewish camp in the desert. Thus, Moses, our teacher, instructed, do not go out beyond the camp. Our sages further reduced the range from 12 mil and ruled that a person may only venture 2,000 ama beyond the city. They chose this range because it is the size of the pasture land that the Torah allocates to all cities and thus the spaces associated with the, with the city. All right, thank you. All right, so let's, let's explain what's going on here. Essentially, there's a law in Torah, and I wrote in the email that this is an interesting law. It's a, perhaps a strange law, and that's what we're going to explain tonight. We're going to explore this tonight. Um, and it's an unfamiliar law. Many of us are not familiar with this Shabbos, with this law that's related to Shabbat. So let me explain, let me explain what's going on here. The Torah tells us not to go out to collect manna on Shabbat. But then it reiterates and says, no man should leave his place on Shabbat. And from that, we derive a new law. Not only not to collect manna on Shabbat, but not to go too far out of our habitation. How do you define a habitation? We just read. Habitation is defined as the city in which you live, which means that in your city, you can walk from one end to the other. There's no limits. If it's a massive city, knock yourself out if you want. But outside of the city, once you leave the city limits, that's when the clock, i.e. the step count or whatever, begins ticking, right? Once you leave the city, now you have a limit. And what's the limit? Originally, Maimonides says, it was 12 mil. That's not miles. 12 mil, which is a Talmudic measurement of area of space. But, and I don't want to get into that, those details because that's the bottom line is that's not what the halach is. The halach is the sages reduced it to 2,000 amma outside the city. Again, within the city, you can walk from one end to the other. So if it's still a city and there's still houses, there are still homes within re relatively uh, uh, close distance, it's all part of one city and you can go from one end to the other, back and forth and north to south and east to west, no problem. But outside the city, once you get outside of the city borders, once it becomes empty space, 2,000 amma is the limit. How far is 2,000 amma? It's about 3,158 feet. Now, that's a little bit less, that's, um, what is that, two-thirds of a mile? Approximately, yes? Approximately two-thirds of a mile, give or take. It's not a large area. 2,000 amma is not long, but again, that is the range outside of a city. Let's continue inside um, with text 2C, which is, the f which is another text to explain um, the laws and the contours of this Tchum Shabbos, meaning the, the walking limit on Shabbat. Uh, let's ask Ariella. Ariella, are you up to reading? If so, please unmute and jump right in. This is text to see once yes. again from Rambam. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, from It Follows? Yes. 
It follows that a person may walk freely throughout the city, even if it is as large as Nineveh, irrespective of whether it is surrounded by a wall. In addition, we may walk 2,000 ama in any direction beyond the city's limits. When calculating the city's limits, a square is drawn around the entire city. Thus, the areas between its farthest corners are included. Let me, thank you. Let me explain exactly what Rambam is saying, what Maimonides is saying. Essentially, I try to set this up by telling you what I told you a moment ago. You can walk freely throughout your city. Not a problem. If it's a city, if there are homes, if there's habitation, you can walk freely throughout the city. There's no limit. There's no, there's no ticker on it. Even if it's as large as Nineveh. Nineveh was one of the big cities back in the day. Um, it's the city that's part of the book of Jonah um, at the heart of, the, of that drama. It's a, it was a big metropolis. The point is you can walk inside the city and you can walk 2,000 amas outside the city. But look at this last line, very important for our discussion. I'm going to read it again. When calculating the city's limits, a square is drawn around the entire city. Thus, the area between its farthest corners are included. Let me explain. I don't think there's a picture here. Nope. Let me explain what's going on, what, what is being said here. Imagine the city is not shaped in a perfect circle or in a square or in it. Imagine the city is kind of like an oval. Imagine an oval-shaped city. Now, what does it mean the city has a shape? Be very careful here. It means that, give me one second. I'm gonna cut this. This is called dad multitasking because it's good to teach Torah, but it's also good to keep fingers safe. See that? It's also a law in Torah. We've got to keep the finger safe. Um, just be very careful with that knife. It's very sharp. So, what, so imagine a city that is in the shape of an oval. What do I mean in the shape of an oval? The houses, the homes, the habitation. It extends from one... Just the, when you look at kind of a bird's eye view of the city, it's shaped like an oval. That's the way it's built. Rambam says, and Halacha has it, that what you do is... You take your oval, whatever it is, and you draw a square. Does that make sense? You draw a square? In other words, you don't measure the borders and then say, well, 2,000 amas from the border. No, 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 no. You make a square, which gives you more area. Are you with me? It gives you a little bit more area? Okay. I, I think most of you are picturing it. Maybe all of you are picturing it. If not, I just want to do this hopefully very simply. Imagine a circle right? A circle, and then you draw a square around the circle that touches the sides of the circle. You're gaining the corners, right? You're gaining the corners. So Halacha says, you don't go mamish from the border of the city. You go, like literally from the border, you go from the square that closes in the city, so to speak, and from there you have 2,000 cubits. So any, anywhere in that square, you're good to go, no problem, no limitations. It's only, it's only outside of that square that you have now 2,000 amos, 2,000 cubits. I know what you're thinking. Well, before, I, before I, I know what you're thinking, let me check in. Any questions so far on the trum? Make sense? Yes? Again, we haven't explained the rationale. We certainly have not explained the Kabbalah. These are the two things we're going to explore tonight. We're going to talk about the law. 
explain the rationale, and then explain the personal lesson for you and I in our lives, in our spiritual lives, in our personal lives in 2021. All right, getting back to our story. Here's the question that one may ask, right? It's a good question. What if you're not in, in a city at all on Shabbat? What if you're camping? Uh, did anybody wonder this question? What if you're camping? So now what? what, what how, how far can I hike on Shabbat? What's my, there's no city. So if I'm in a city, I can walk throughout the city and then 2,000, up to 2,000 amos beyond the city. But if I'm not in a city, so what, what's my range? Maimonides addresses this. Don't worry, we don't, we don't need to speculate. It's in Jewish law. I'm going to share my screen with you and you are going to see for yourself what the halacha is. Um, let's ask uh, ba, 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 Susan. Susan, please, if you're up to it, please jump in and unmute. Text number three from Rambam Maimonides, Shabbat in the wilderness. One who spends the Sabbath in a barn, in the desert, in a uh, corral, in a cave, or in a similar type of private domain, may walk through its entire space and may continue to the limits of a square extending 2,000 amma in every direction from that domain. Similarly, one who spends the Sabbath in an open valley may walk to the limits of a square extending 2,000 cubits in every direction from the place at which he is located at the commencement of the Sabbath. One who is walking in an open valley and does not know how far his Sabbath range extends may take 2,000 ordinary steps. This is his Sabbath range. There you go. This, that's it. Maimonides clarifies. If you're outside, you're not in a city, so you can't use your city as the center outside of which you have 2,000 uh, ama. So, so what do you use as your center? So he says, if you're in a barn or a corral or a cave or another type of hut or whatever it is, so you square off your space and you have 2,000 ama in each direction, right? Northeast, southwest of that square. What if you don't have, what if you're not in a cave? What if you're in a little tent? All right, take your tent. Draw a square around it, and you have 2,000 amma. How do you know how far 2,000 amma is? Right? I don't have a measuring tape. You can't even use a measuring tape on, Sh on Shabbat. That's another thing, which is not for tonight's class. So what do you do? So my, my Maimonides says, my Maimonides says, by the way, what can you do on Shabbat? Can't use a measuring tape. Can't walk more than 2,000 cubits. What can you do? You can, you can daven and eat chalant. Many, many things that you can do, by the way. Right? You can daven. You can eat chalant. There's so many things. Um, and What? And you can re and Riva says and you can rest right. She knows the day of rest. Yes. You well, you could be in a world even if you're not in a town because you could be out of town, like camping in the desert, right? So you would square it off, and then you would walk two th up to two thousand cubits. And how do you know two thousand cubits? You count two thousand ordinary steps. You know what he means by ordinary steps? You know what he means? It's not. It's not like the. Loop doo doo, right? The, the big steps, you know what I mean? Like big dinosaur steps. Oh, I have 2,000 steps. Let me maximize my, uh, my walking. Right, we're not driving, right? We're walking. So 2,000 ordinary steps. It's not like itty bitty steps. You don't have to like put like 
You know, like when you, you know how people think they can, they can measure a room with their feet? It's like, how, how long, let me just walk this out. Maybe some people could do it every time I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I just measured 25 of my steps of my foot and I, so now what? <laughs> what does that mean? Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, it's 22,000 ordinary steps that gets you to your destination, to your Shabbat limit. Those are the rules essentially of the Tchum Shabbat. So we learn this, we derive this from the story of the manna and the violation, the breach that happened on that first Shabbat, the first Saturday of the manna, of the food from heaven. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, that food from heaven lasted 40 years until the Jews finally got into the land of Israel and became farmers and made their own food. So throughout the desert, they had miraculous water, they had miraculous food from heaven, but they didn't collect it on Shabbat. The Torah tells, I'm just recapping now, the Torah tells us, God says, don't go out on Shabbat, don't collect man on Shabbat, and don't go out from your place on Shabbat. We learn two laws. Number one, don't collect mana. Number two, don't go out of your place, out of your city. 2,000 cubits constitutes the limit. Um, outside of that, we don't go. Inside your city, that's not a problem because it's still considered your place, so to speak. If you're alone, camping, or whatever, then square off your, your immediate space, and then you can go out 2,000 cubits. Now, this is all the opinion of Rambam, Maimonides. Maimonides considers Tchum Shabbos, Tchum means the limit, the boundary, the border, the walking limit of Shabbat. He considers it to be a biblical mitzvah derived from that verse that we should, the second half of that last verse of text one that I showed you earlier. However, he's not the only game in town. Maimonides, although Maimonides is, is, is the great Rambam, the great Maimonides, nonetheless, there are other opinions, other Rishonim, other early biblical commentaries that have a bit of a different take on it. For example, Rashi, who you probably know as one of the most basic and essential, basic not to reduce him, but essential, fundamental Torah biblical commentaries, Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, the great French Talmudist and Torah scholar, Rashi says that this prohibition of Tchum Shabbos, of not walking past 2,000 cubits, 2,000 Amma, is not biblical, it is of rabbinic origin. It's not of biblical origin, it's rabbinic origin. Now, there's also an allusion, a hint, in the biblical text, but he says that's not necessarily what the Torah is meaning to say in that verse, that we had in text number one. Let me share my screen with you and let's look at Rashi's opinion. Again, this is different than Maimonides, a little bit different, but uh, it's, good to, it's good to know the different opinions. Karen, how's your mic working? Is it operational? All right, awesome. Go ahead, please. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Text number four. Okay. No man should leave his place. These are the 2000 Amma of the Sabbath range, but this is not explicit for the Sabbath range. Rather, it is a rabbinic enactment. This verse was primarily intended to reprimand the gatherers of mud. Rashi, thank you. Rashi clearly says that the verse is only literally referring as an admonition or admonishment to the gatherers of the mana. To reprimand, you're not supposed to go out on Shabbat to collect your mana. The rabbis created a rabbinic law 
a rabbinic enactment to say also don't go out of any city on Shabbat, even to collect your mana, to not collect your mana, whatever it is, right? For sightseeing purposes, don't go out from your city more... I am a rabbi. I'm not one of those rabbis, though. Right? These are early. These are rabbis many, many years ago. Um, although, I may have a decree or two for you. I'm kidding. I don't. Right? So, so um, uh, there, he says it's a rabbinic enactment. It's a rabbinic decree. Okay. Either way, either way, whether you ascribe, whether you lean toward the Maimonidean camp, who says that this prohibition is biblical, or the Rashi camp, and the majority of other scholars, by the way, who say it's a rabbinic enactment, an enactment or decree, either way, we don't do it on Shabbat. Whether it's biblical or rabbinic, we treat both the same. In general, in Halakha and Jewish law, we treat biblical um, uh, instruction and rabbinic instruction when I refer to rabbinic instruction, I mean original rabbinic instruction that's canonized in Talmud and Halacha. We treat it essentially the same. Of course, there are some distinctions in extenuating circumstances, whether something is biblical or rabbinic, but those are extenuating circumstances. In normative cases, it doesn't matter whether it's biblical or rabbinic. If we're not supposed to do it, we don't do it. So the way it stands today is whether we agree with Rambam or Rashi, Maimonides or Rashi, we don't walk past 2,000 cube, 2,000 ama outside of this city. Good. The question is why. According to Maimonides, there doesn't necessarily need to be a rationale, right? Because it's a biblical commandment. So it's a, it's a mitzvah. It is what it is. According to Rashi, though, and the majority of sages, that tell us that it's a rabbinic enactment, that means that the rabbis saw fit to prohibit travel outside of the city more than these 2,000 ama, more than these 30, whatever, 3,000 plus, 3,500 feet. The question is why? Why make this rabbinic enactment? So let's talk about, let's take a general look at the laws of Shabbat and rabbinic enactments regarding the laws of Shabbat and figure out why might the rabbis have, set, have put, put the kibosh on the stroll, on, a, on, a, on the extended stroll. What's the big deal about taking a hike on Shabbat. All right. A very long hike outside the city. What's the problem? So in general, this is again, we're now taking a step back to understand the context of this prohibition. In general, there are 39 categories of forbidden work on Shabbat. 39 categories. And they include things like plowing and sowing and reaping and harvesting and etc. It includes a lot of agricultural stuff and sewing and writing and other, other forms. 39 categories. Now is not the time nor the place to go through them in detail, perhaps in another class, another opportunity. But suffice to say, there are 39 categories. And within each category, these are all considered to be parent categories. There are subcategories within these general categories. Many um, uh, individual areas of prohibition that stem from these 39 categories. But in addition to all of this, there are rabbinic enactments where the rabbis came along and said, you know what, this may be permitted biblically. In other words, um, theoretically, or not theoretically, 
Um, literally, from Torah law, this activity might be okay. However, we are going to say, don't do it on Shabbat. Why? One of two reasons. And for those two reasons, we're going to go back inside and look at Rambam. Look at Maimonides. All right? Again, Maimonides is the great halachic authority, and he is... He just writes so beautifully. By the way, these rabbinic enactments are called Shavut. You see that? You see that in the title right there where I'm hovering my hand, my virtual hand, Shavut on the Sabbath? Shavut means rabbinic enactments, a prohibition on Shabbat in addition to those 39 categories. So here we go. Here's what Rambam says. Uh, Richard, are you up to reading? No? Yes, Susan, Richard, Susan, one of you? Yeah, I got it. I'm mute. Awesome. Uh, the Torah tells us to cease during the Sabbath. This means that we must cease even from activities that are not included in the category of labor. <coughs> the Torah left the definition of the scope of this commandment to the sages who, who forbade many activities under the rubric of Shavuot. Some activities are for, because they resemble, they resemble the forbidden laws. Well, other activities are forbidden. At least they lead one to commit a forbidden labor. All right, perfect. So we have two rationales. And again, it's all under the category of shvut. What is shvut? It's related to the word tishbot, which means to rest, to cease, to stop. And therefore, the Torah says in general to rest. So what does it mean to rest? In addition... This is important. In addition to the 39 categories of, pro of prohibited labor, we also have this overarching general commandment to rest. So the sages helped define what it means to rest on Shabbat. And they included two categories of forbidden labors in addition to biblical law. These are things that they forbade because they resemble forbidden labors. See, that's category number one, things that resemble what's forbidden. The second category are things that are forbidden because they might lead one to commit a forbidden labor. I want to give you an example of both categories. All right. Again, category number one, it looks too close to the forbidden. Category number two, it might lead to the forbidden. Slippery slope. Here we go. You ready? There is a prohibition of reaping. Reaping means like one example is plucking fruit from a tree on Shabbat. As some of you may know, we have a we have a um, a peach tree in our front yard, right? Right. Ellen? And we also have a plum tree. Yeah. Yeah, but the yeah, plums are a little bit. One second. Yeah. But it grows, but it, it sometimes grows. Sometimes it grows. Right. Sometimes. The peach, the peaches last last spring when everything was kind of quiet, the peaches were going bananas. I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but the peaches were off the hook. We had like a thousand peaches come out. It was, I don't know, it was it was wild. So here's the deal: on Shabbat we don't pick fruit. Why? It's one of the thirty-nine categories, or it's a part of one of the thirty-nine categories. Our sages said, "Listen to this." We didn't plant it. Somebody else planted it. But we're lucky that we, uh, we got it. All right. However, the sages said that, you know what else should be forbidden? That is taking honey from a honeycomb on Shabbat. 
Taking honey from a honeycomb. What's wrong with taking honey from a honeycomb? Right? Aside from, you know, stirring the bees. Right? Use protective gear. I've never done this, so I don't know if you have to, but I would assume that you have to. Right? So aside from that, it resembles, the sages said, category one, right? It may resemble the idea of picking fruit. In other words, if taking honey from a honeycomb, right? Taking honey from the honeycomb would be permitted on Shabbat, which it technically is, and people would do that. So somebody might say, well... All right, this is very similar to, to picking an apple from a tree. If I can do this, I can certainly do that. If one resembles the other, they might make a mistake. So in order to preclude the mistake that humans might make, the rabbi said, you know what? In addition to not picking the fruit, don't take the honey from the honeycomb. Make li- it'll just make life easier. That's one category of shvut, of the rabbinic enactments. The other category is, something that might lead you, not because you're making a mistake, but something that might entice you to then violate the law. So that would be, you ready for this one, category two? Don't smell an apple on an apple tree on Shabbat. You see that? The rabbi said, don't smell an apple on the tree on Shabbat. Because you know what might happen? You know, it's not that you're going to mistake in honeycombs for apple. It's because you might get so caught up in the moment. Yeah? It smells so good. It looks so good. It looks so tasty. You might pull an Adam and Eve. That's all I'll say. Right? You might then go ahead and pop it up. Oh, no, I'm not. But you are eating an apple. But that was picked before Shabbos. Okay. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um... Yes. What about smelling a flower? Good question. Because flowers are typically not picked on the same level as, as, um, as fruit, right? So it might be in a different category. We would have to look it up and see exactly where that comes in about smelling a flower. But a fruit is much more likely to be picked and then consumed. Whereas a flower... I don't know, you see a flower, you don't mind if it stays because, you know, whatever. I mean, not that people don't cut flowers, but it's a little bit of a, of a less immediate thing, I think, than, than picking fruit. But again, uh, don't quote me on this. We would have to look it up in the, in, in the books. But these are two examples so far of the two categories, one example each of the categories of shvut, right? Shvut, again, it comes from tishbot, that we're supposed to rest on Shabbat. In general, we're supposed to rest and that was given up to the rabbis to legislate, the rabbis said, look, anything that resembles a forbidden labor, not anything, but certain things that resemble uh, might, be, might be prohibited. Likewise, things that might lead you to a forbidden activity also could be off the table. But the question is, what's the problem with walking out, again, according to Rashi and the other sages, that's, and the other opinions that say that it's a rabbinic enactment, why did the rabbis prohibit walking outside your city 2,000 amma? What are you going to do? What does it resemble? Plowing? Reaping? Harvesting? What does it resemble? What's the problem? I'm walking 2,000 cubits. I can, so you're telling me I can walk 1999, right? Limited time only, 1999. But when I get to 2,000, oops, what's the problem? What does it resemble? Nothing. What is it going to lead to? 
I don't, w w what's it leading to? What's the danger of, of, of walking outside the city? So we need to look a little bit deeper, or we need to look further into rabbinic enactments on Shabbat. And I want to introduce now a third category where the rabbis said, don't do this on Shabbat. And I'm going to share my screen and I will read this text. This is going to be text number six. And if you notice, I love the header here, not in the spirit of the day. That should already give you a clue as to category three. Again, category one, resembling a prohibition, a biblical prohibition. Category two might lead to a prohibition. Category three, not in the spirit of the day. Let's read it inside. I'll read this text six. There are activities that are forbidden on the Sabbath, though they don't resemble the forbidden labors, nor do they lead to their performance, right? They don't fit into category one, nor do they fit into category two. So why are these activities forbidden? Oh, Maimonides reads our mind. Why? Because it is written, if you restrain your feet because of the Sabbath and refrain from pursuing your desires on my holy day, and you should honor it. In other words, then you'll be blessed. And you should honor it by refraining from following your ordinary ways, attending to your wants, and discussing mundane matters. Look at that line. Look at that quote. I, I wish I could highlight it, and I can't. I could just move my virtual hand you know, back and forth over there. It's talking about not doing ordinary things, not discussing mundane matters, keeping it sanctified, and moving away from making it mundane. Let back inside. Accordingly, Rambam says, it is forbidden to tend to our concerns on the Sabbath or even talk about them. In other, for example, to consult a partner on which merchandise should be sold the next day or which should be purchased, how this building should be constructed, or which merchandise should be taken to a particular place. Such discussions are included in the prohibition against discussing mundane matters. As we say, it's not Shabbosdik. It's not in the spirit of Shabbos. So we don't discuss business. We don't discuss mundane things, right? You can discuss, there is an exception. You could discuss the Steelers or the Penguins. These are things that you can discuss. But outside of that, mundane things, we don't talk about, right? We don't talk about on Shabbos. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about business. We don't talk about these things. Right? We're not supposed to. Is it a biblical prohibition? No. Is it rabbinic? Yes. Why? Because it's going to lead to, 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 um, to, uh, to putting in a trade on Wall Street. The market's closed. Anyway, it's not about resembling a prohibition. It's not about leading to a prohibition. It's simply not in the spirit of the day. It's not Bacovedic. It's not, it's not honoring the day. It's not, it's not in the spirit of the day. This is category number three of rabbinic enactments. Let me check in with all of you and make sure that what, what we've said so far makes sense. Does it, does it make sense? Yes? Yes? We have yes. biblical... Good. Have Good. One second, one second. We have biblical... So let me just recap. We have biblical prohibitions and rabbinic prohibitions on Shabbat. The biblical are the 39 categories and their offshoots. The rabbinic are either things that resemble that things that might lead to one of those, or things that are simply not in the spirit of the day. Sandrine, go ahead. Is Shavuot only about laws of Shabbat, or can be about other forbidden? Uh, it's, a good, it's a very good question. The sages definitely did institute 
other, other prohibitions. For example, the idea of, of whatever. I, we could give examples. I don't want to distract the class. But yeah, there are other examples of rabbinic prohibitions. That would be, jump out for a second. Let me just end this. Yeah, there are, jump back on. We're good. So there are other examples of rabbinic prohibitions that also are about creating a boundary around the law and protecting us from, you know, going down a slippery slope towards something negative. That would not be called shvut. Shvut is specifically language regarding Shabbat. Shvut means about resting or ceasing, and it's related to um, tishbot, a, a verse that says regarding Shabbat, Yom hashvi tishbot, on the seventh day, cease. What does it mean, cease? It's open-ended. So we, we understand this to mean rabbinic enactments that will help a person either not resemble a forbidden action or not lead to a forbidden action, etc. But yeah, there are other rabbinic enactments. It's not called shvut, it's just called a takana or a gzera. There are different words in, in, in halakhic terminology, but it's essentially a similar construct. So again, the third category, which we're focusing on for the walking on Shabbat, is not doing things that are mundane. But again, the question is, what's mundane about walking on Shabbat? Let me share my screen. Uh, 2000 Amma outside the city. Take a look at the next text. Here we have the Arach HaShulchan who explains. Here we go. Text 7. With respect to the Sabbath boundaries, Tchum Shabbos, it appears that our sages did not want Jews to stroll about excessively on the Sabbath as one does during the weekday. For it is proper to plug into the delight of the Shabbat, of the Sabbath, and engage in Torah study. In other words, in other words, what he's saying is, on Shabbat, what is going on? What are we meant to be doing? Shabbat, we're meant to be connecting with the spirit of the day. Connecting with family and community and connecting within. And not traveling out. During the week, you can travel out, you take a road trip or whatever it is. On Shabbat... We stay inside. It's an inner day. It's an inward day as opposed to an, out, an outward day. So this is the way most of, the, of, of our sages understand the rationale behind the rabbinic, again, if, if you say it's rabbinic, the rabbinic prohibition of walking outside the city. Again, the rationale is because we're meant to, to have an inward experience and it's not meant to be about getting out and getting away. It's meant to be contained and holy and sacred. That's the rationale. All of this is nice and all this is wonderful and we've learned a very interesting law, a very important law, and a fascinating law and, and some of the rules and regs regarding, in general, Shabbat prohibitions and Shabbat law. And, and you know what? Dayenu. This could be enough. But we're going to go further. In our remaining minutes, we're going to explore the Kabbalah of Tchum, the Kabbalah of the boundaries. The Kabbalah of don't move. What does it mean? All right. So we need to understand a little bit more about the phrase Chilul Shabbos. Chilul Shabbos means, um, uh, what's a good translation? Chilul Shabbos means when a person, when, when one... Um, Desecrates. Desecrates. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Desecrates. Desecrates Shabbat. But the Rebbe has a novel interpretation of the word Chilul 
Shabbos. Chilul, desecration of Shabbos, of Shabbat. And the Rebbe says the word Chilul is related to the word Chalal. Chalal means a hole or a void. The Rebbe says something incredible. Shabbat is meant to be a space. Shabbat is meant to be a space, a sanctum, in which we can go into once a week. For six days, we're out there. I don't, want to mean, I don't mean to over-dramatize it, but I will. We're out there flailing in the world. We're out there. The winds of the world are blowing us to and fro, and we're like, we're like that badminton birdie. You know the badminton birdie? Yeah, being just clapped from one side to the other, to the other, and that's it. And that's who we are six days a week. We're out there in the world. We're vulnerable. We're working. We're carpooling. We're shopping. We're being harassed. We're being inundated by the media and by technology and emails and, and deadlines and who knows what. One day a week, done. We have our space. We have our sanctuary. It's an oasis in time. It's a holy bubble, Batman. It's a holy space. It's a space just to be and to connect and to let go of all of the Mishagasin, all of the craziness. It's a sacred space. So what happens if we introduce something not sacred into that space? We puncture it. We had a holy bubble. And what happened was we took a needle and we poked a hole. Inside the space, the holy space of Shabbat, we created a void. Shabbat is a sanctuary. We created an element of mundane inside the sacred. It's almost like if there's an accepted, if you're having a, 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 family, a family gathering and seeing each other for the first time in, 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 a, in a while, which we probably can relate to during these times of the pandemic, right? And you see each other and all you want to do is connect and there's an understanding beyond words that it's all about connecting with each other in this moment. And then someone's phone goes off and they take the phone call and they're outside, they step outside the room and the magic is broken. You with me on, on the analogy? Yeah? Shabbos is a sacred space. So what does Chilul Shabbos mean? It's typically mean, translated as desecration, but the Rebbe says it's more than desecration. What does that even mean? It means it's a puncture. There was an aura. There was a beauty. There was a splendor. There was an energy. And you poked a hole, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kink in the armor, so to speak. All right, it's just one hole. It's not the end of the world, right? Right? But it's a hole. But it's a hole. It's compromising the sanctity. This is what the Rebbe says. That's true with all of the forbidden labors on Shabbat. But when it comes to walking outside the city, our mitzvah, our discussion tonight, you're not puncturing the bubble. You're taking Shabbat outside the bubble. Let me explain. Most of the, most of the prohibited labors on Shabbat, the issue is puncturing the bubble. But walking outside the city, it's not puncturing the bubble. It's taking your aura, it's taking your Shabbat and moving it outside to a space that's simply distracting. So in your city, it's still your space. 
you're not distracted. Even outside, within 2,000 amma, that's considered to be like the natural boundaries, the natural um, buffer, if you will, of a city, that's also okay. But once you, once you stray outside of that, then you're taking your Shabbat and moving it to a place that's, um, that's not Shabbistic, that's not, it's not in the spirit. So there's two types of prohibitions on Shabbat. Most of them are about the puncture. But the walking is about not puncturing the bubble, but it's about moving the bubble too far outside of its comfort zone. Does that make sense? So let's end, let's end now with a practical lesson. Such a beautiful practical lesson. The Rebbe says that in each of us, in our own, just like in time, there's Shabbat and weekday. So too in the human biology, in the human experience, there's Shabbat and there's the Holy Shabbat and the, the mundane weekday. What is that? It's the mind, the heart, the soul is Shabbat. And the body, the limbs are like the more mundane part, the weekday. So we have messages, we have lessons from both, both forms of prohibitions on Shabbat. The first category are things that, you sh- that we shouldn't do to puncture the bubble. What that means is our minds should be sacred spaces. I want to make this very simple to understand. The, your mind should be, my mind, our mind should be sacred spaces. Don't allow, forget, it's not about Shabbat or the week. We're now transporting these messages of Shabbat and the weekday to the human condition. Your head, your mind, your brain is Shabbat, is holy. Treat it holy. Don't puncture the sacredness of your mind with shtuyot, with, with, with things that are, that are not befitting to be in there. Keep it sacred. Keep the space between your ears holy. Just because it's out there doesn't mean you have to listen. Doesn't mean you have to watch. Doesn't mean you have to take it in. You and I know what it feels like to take in negative influences. How destructive it is. How you can't erase an image from your mind. How you can't erase an idea from your mind. How you can't regain vulnerability. Sorry, you can't regain naivete once it's gone. Our minds are sacred spaces. And yes, our hands have to get dirty in the world. We have to go to work and we have to deal with stuff. But keep our heads holy and pure. That's lesson number one. Again, lesson number one is, when you have a holy space, don't poke a hole in it. Our, our minds are holy. Our hearts can be holy. Our souls are holy. Let's keep, one second, let's keep these spaces sacred. Put armor around it. Protect your sacred spaces. To the point that Kabbalah says, and Hasidic philosophy says, that when we go to work, don't let it, don't let it mess with your head. Yes, you have to think when you work and you have to figure out the best way to do stuff, but don't let it get to you. Don't let it bring you down. Have a fortress of sacredness, a fortress of of protection for yourself, for your own good. Keep your Sabbath pure and don't poke a hole in it. Does that make sense? That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, and this is a lesson that we take from not going outside the boundary on Shabbat. Right? The f- most prohibitions are about not poking the hole. This is about not going out. The Rebbe says, 
What's the problem with going out? The problem with going out is that we're taking the, the holiness and moving it to an untoward place, moving it too far out. So what does that mean for us? It doesn't mean, does not mean, that we shouldn't take our, our, our sacred spaces and, and, and fill our body, our, our hands and our feet with mitzvot. Of course we're meant to do that. But here's what it means. Make sure that our bodies are not considered to be the outside in the first place. Right? Make your whole body a sacred space. Right? Just like on Shabbat, we're allowed to walk inside the city because the whole city, not just your house, the whole city becomes your inner space, your place. The Rebbe says the message is make your entire being a sacred space. So that it's not like I have my head versus my hands, but my hands are an extension of the sacred sanctity and the perspective, the value system in my head, so that I'm not talking the talk, so I'm not talking one way, but acting a different way, inconsistent with that. Rather, I should keep my walking, if you will, inside a singular space. What happens outside is what happens outside, but I'm going to be sure that my head my heart and my spirit are aligned with my body so that I'm not walking outside Shabbat. I'm not walking outside city limits, which means on a very practical level. We go to shul and we pray. We come to a class, we study Torah. We celebrate a holiday and we celebrate a holiday and we feel inspired, we feel connected with God and Yiddishkeit and all sorts and our value systems and it feels amazing. Question is, what happens next? What happens next, right? What happens when we, the next time we go somewhere, or we do something, is it disconnected from the head, heart, and soul experience? Or is it one experience? And that's the second message. The second message is, don't leave your bubble. What does that mean? Expand your bubble and you won't have to leave. You with me on that? Expand your bubble. And you won't have to leave your bubble. Expand your bubble beyond your head and your heart and your soul to include your hands and your feet. That all of, all of our biology, our entire beings, should be permeated with the energy and the inspiration of our values. So, in summation, by the way, and everything that I told you is in the text. If you have the Torah Studies books, books you can, a book, you can, you can see it there. Um, I wanted to be sure to get in this information so we didn't have time to, to read these texts inside, but everything that I told you is in the text. And again, you can reference it. So here's the bottom line. Two lessons that we can take home with us in our day-to-day -day life. Number one, our beings, our minds are sacred. Protect your sacred spaces. Don't allow a negative influence in if you can help it. Now, if you can't help it, you can't help it. If it came somehow, you know, outside of your, uh, you know, it just happened upon you, fine. But don't puncture, certainly don't puncture intentionally your sacred spaces. Keep your head and your heart and your spirit pure. Message one. Message two, expand your base. Expand your center. Expand your bubble. Don't just keep your bubble locked into one place so that I have a disconnect between head and, ha head and hand, but rather expand your city. Make your city expanded so that your hands are also filled, are also doing 
in accordance with your value system. In this way, we will have been true to ourselves, true to our calling, and uh, metaphorically being consistent with the theme of Shabbat. I hope this made sense. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. Hope you enjoyed the discussion about maybe perhaps an unfamiliar unfamiliar law, as well as probing deeper into the law. All right, that concludes the class formally. I am going to stick around and take questions if you have them. All right, go ahead. Feel free to unmute. Thank you, thank you. Rabbi? Yes, Donna. Is this, is this similar to the concept Eruv, E-R-U-V, with a string around the city? So the Eruv is a little bit different. The Eruv is about carrying something outside of private property into the public domain, which is different. You cannot Eruv, you cannot Eruv um, for the Tchum. What you could do, though, is build more houses to extend your city. Are you with me? As long as there is a habitation, which, by the way, is defined by a place where food is. So in some places in Israel, for example, they have poles, little outposts, with food. And that is considered to be a house or a hut to extend the 2,000. Are you with me on what I'm saying? So you can keep on going as long as they're within a certain frequency, one to the other, you can keep on extending. But no, Erev is, is for a different purpose, but Erev is another Shabbos uh, uh, element. But good question. Yeah. Oh, I see in the chat also, Dina Malka is asking about Erev. Yeah. Good. Karen, go ahead. So the, you know, this, this whole idea of space and time, one of the things that I've always been just enraptured by is Heschel's architecture of, of that the Shabbat is architecture in time. Okay, it's a palace in time. That six days a week, I love that. you know, we are in, this, in, in things of space, in things of creation, the tyranny of space, which you talked about, you know, the, the deadlines, the traffic, whatever, and that Shabbat then becomes the sanctity of time. And so I, I felt like the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's explanation and the way I understood it, you know, um, sanctified space instead of sanctifying time. Um, and so I'm a little, you know, I'm a little kind of disjointed about that because I, I, I think, I don't know, I think that the idea of sanctifying time resonates at least more with me than sanctifying space. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think the literal understanding is that you're sanctifying, that you're sanctifying, well, Shabbat is time, but you're also creating a space. But look, I'm pretty sure from Einstein, right? Time and space are connected anyway, right? Yes, that's true. Is that true? Am I making this up? I don't know if I'm, maybe I'm making... One is the celebration of the, you know, the things of um, um, the the things that are in the world, the creation of things in the world, and the other is the celebration of creation itself, right? So Shabbat is more about the creation of the world versus the world of creations. It's so, a, it's really about acknowledge, yeah. If, so to add on that, it's really about during the week we are the creators. Right? Or we tell ourselves we are the creators. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can make. On Shabbat, 
We, we rest and bask in God's creation. We connect with the source. Instead of us being source, we connect with the, the ultimate source, the actual source. Right? We connect with the real source as opposed to our artificial source. Look, I, I, I think I hear what you're saying, but I don't see it as necessarily a contradiction, especially when we talk about Kabbalah and there's a connection between, um, uh, between um, net. I can't, I, I can't remember the terms now. It's um, Olam Shana Nefesh. Olam Shana Nefesh. Olam is world, which is space. Shana is year, which is time. And Nefesh is soul, spirit. There's always a connection between these three dynamics. These three elements form a triangle, right? Olam, Shana, Nefesh, space, time, spirit. So what's true in one is true in, in the others. So if it's true that in space, there's, there are mundane spaces or open spaces and sacred spaces, closed-in spaces, the same thing is going to be true in time. And the same thing is going to be true in spirit as well, which is how we concluded the class about our own spirit creating those sacred spaces and in fact and not puncturing it but even expanding it so that more is taken within that sacred space so i i i i see it being true on multiple levels and and i i actually think it's it's nice to have these parallels in those other those other areas if that makes sense yeah, so I, I see your point now i mean and you're right you know you can't i mean time is is you know, is definitely from a from a physics perspective, time and space are definitely right. connected. Yeah. yeah, I think it was in Back to the Future, something about a space time continuum or something, or wherever that's from. So if it's, it's actually Einstein posited this many years ago, and then now finding out that everything Einstein posited is true about the universe. He had a Yiddish cup. How could he not be true? I mean. <laughs> Uh, there's actually space time which is space time that was an einstein space time is is a you know derivative of einstein's theory you know so you know that which that's a whole other thing but yeah we don't want to all right good questions comments sure of course questions comments about tchum about the the boundaries no all right great to see everybody I want to wish you all a meaningful rest of the week and a meaningful Shabbat. And we don't have to wait till Shabbat. Create your sacred space. Defend it fiercely. And, uh, and expand your base. Expand your space to include other areas as well. Keep the good times rolling. Stay healthy. Stay good. And great to see you all. Really. It's truly a, a blessing to see you all and to have the opportunity to study together. All right. Lila Tov, everybody. Saturday evening. Saturday evening. Saturday night. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. There is. Yes, there is a cafe Chabad Saturday night. Yes, yes. Take a look. It's on the website. Information in townjewishacademy.org. It's. Uh, we have a special, special event, special speaker. So definitely join us for that. Ray, did you want to say something? Yeah. Is there a class tomorrow at noon and Friday at noon? There is. Um, no, no DPP tomorrow because we're doing JLI tomorrow. Oh. Okay. Um, but Friday, there is class at noon. Yes. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right. Pleasure. All right. Good to see you all. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Lila Tov. Pleasure. Bye. Thank you all. Good to see you all.